Okay. Three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning. Good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Today is Monday, February 11th. And uh, man, um, it was a hard weekend. I got to briefly say, first of all, a lot of good football this weekend. It was great. I loved watching the AAF. Um, personally, in my life, it was hard. I want to say this. On uh, Friday, last Friday, February 8th, it was the three-year anniversary of my brother's death. And if you know the story, my brother committed suicide. He took his own life. And I just want to say, if you're struggling, please get help. I don't. If you have problems, please talk to somebody. Uh, the suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255. But really talk to someone in your life. Um, you know, my brother never shared his struggles. Uh, one day I walked into his bedroom, I found him dead on the floor, and that really sucked. And so uh, please don't do that. <laughs> Talk to somebody. And uh, you know, if, if you care about somebody, tell them you love them. Tell them you appreciate them. Make sure they know they're appreciated. You know, I'm not certain that my brother knew exactly how much he meant to me. And so if I can pass anything along to you, please tell the people in your life you care about them, you love them. Um, it can make a greater impact on them than you could ever possibly know. Um, we have a great show today. First, I guess I want to start with this. The two most important news stories today are one that Kyler Murray, the former Oklahoma quarterback Heisman Trophy winner, has decided he's going to fully commit to playing football. He's going to play quarterback in the NFL. He's going to enter the NFL draft. He will not be pursuing a, a career in baseball, it sounds like. Uh, that's a great move. I think it's a really smart move. One, it's him following his passion. It's your career. You're going to do your career. And not very many people get a chance to do what they love as their job. And so the fact that Kyler Murray is going in the pursuit of what his heart desires, that's really, really cool. I think that's massively important. Also, I think he could be more successful as an NFL player. Uh, and the truth is, you know, baseball, Major League Baseball has three tiers of minor league systems before you even get to the big leagues. And the NFL is not like that. The NFL has the NFL and now the AAF. There's, you play in the AAF or the NFL, and Kyler Murray has a very, very high chance and not only making it onto an NFL team, but becoming a franchise quarterback down the road, I think this is the right choice. Not only, again, his ability helps him in the NFL, but also the guys following his heart. That is massively important. I think Kyler Murray joining the NFL uh, and committing to playing quarterback is a big deal. I'm really excited to watch him, and I think he made the right decision in the end. The other big story today is that the Cleveland Browns have signed Kareem Hunt to a one-year deal. And uh, really, I, I think it's a... From a football standpoint, this is a fantastic move. you, you got to understand who Kareem Hunt is. The history of Kareem Hunt is Kareem Hunt is a guy who got into a domestic violence dispute in February. There's a video of him kicking a woman. And when the video came out, the Kansas City Chiefs released him immediately. Kansas City Chiefs said, nope, we're not putting up with that. You're out. And so from a moral standpoint, you know, um, I, I don't, obviously I don't condone what he did. Nobody does. And the Cleveland Browns even said in their announcement today, we do not condone his actions. However, you know, he's under a, an investigation. If He might be suspended. Right? All this talk about Kareem Hunt might be for nothing, but it is possible he plays next year. And the Cleveland Browns have said, look, we are a terrible franchise, and we're going to put our morality to the side and bring on possibly— uh, we can all be honest about Kareem Hunt. He might be one of the best athletes in the entire NFL. So it's worth noting the Cleveland Browns have the rights to Kareem Hunt. If he's not suspended, he will be playing for the Browns next year. And factual statement, that's really good for the Browns. That is a, for their franchise, for their ability to win games, that's a big move. Is it the right move morally? I have no idea. I'm not the judge of that, thank goodness. I don't want to be. 
Uh, we'll find out. I don't. Maybe their fans will boycott them. Who knows? Um, but uh, that did happen today. It's worth noting. I want to make a correction. In the last episode, I made a big mistake. It's embarrassing. I own my mistakes. I talk about things, and uh, I try not to run away from the things I say that are dumb. I said last week that Brad Childress was the head coach of the Atlanta Legends in the Alliance of American Football. That was wrong. Um, Brad Childress is not the Atlanta Legends head coach. The Atlanta Legends head coach is indeed Kevin Coyle. Brad Childers stepped down sometime in mid-January, about a month ago. I missed it. I don't know how I missed it, but I did. Uh, and we will talk more about the Atlanta Legends down the road. They have a... God, I got a lot, of, I got a lot to say. We're going to talk a lot about the AAF in this episode. Um, I don't know about you. Maybe you, you have no interest in the Alliance of American Football. I went down the rabbit hole this weekend. I loved it. It was fantastic. A lot of fun to watch. And uh, a majority of my show is actually dedicated to the opening weekend. It moved a lot of stuff back. Because I was just so fascinated. I loved watching this league. Football is my passion. It's my favorite thing in the world. And uh, it really, really, not only did it grab my attention, it grabbed my respect. I thought this was a, a really good showing for the Alliance of American Football. Before we get into the stories I want to talk about, I want to say this. I'm working on a top 10 list of quarterbacks. I'm going to do a, 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 two, a one entire show dedicated to quarterbacks in the NFL draft. I'll do a film review for each quarterback, all 10, and then the final topic, I will rank them. So there'll be 11 topics total in that episode. A, a film review for each quarterback showing highlights and footage and what their mistakes are. Very in-depth. Probably will take me an entire week to work on. And then at the end, the 11th topic will be a ranking of best to worst. The 10 quarterbacks I plan on talking about are these 10. I'm going to list them now. That way, if you have any umbrage, you want me to talk about somebody I missed, you can. Uh, I will say this, though, first. Two quarterbacks I refuse to talk about. Uh, one is Trace McSorley from Penn State. The other is Jake Browning from the University of Washington. I do not think these are great NFL prospects. I don't think they're worth our time. They might play in the AAF down the road, but I do not want to talk about those two quarterbacks. I have no interest. I don't think they're worth talking about. Now, the 10 I plan to talk about are these guys. One, it's Clayton Thorson from Northwestern. Two, it's Drew Locke from Missouri. Three, Dwayne Haskins from Ohio State. Tyree Jackson from Buffalo is the fourth quarterback on the list. We'll talk about Kyler Murray, the Oklahoma quarterback. That's the one I'm most excited to dive into the film for. I can't wait to see if he's actually indeed potentially a franchise quarterback. We'll talk about Will Greer from West Virginia, Ryan Finley from NC State, Daniel Jones from Duke, Gardner Minshew from Washington State, and Jarrett Stidham from Auburn. Those are the 10 quarterbacks I plan on talking about. If I missed someone or there's someone you want me to talk about, please let me know. But right now, those are the 10 I plan on talking about, and I do not plan to talk about Trace McSorley or Jake Browning. Uh, here's where I want to go next. First of all, I, I love this room. It's huge. It's daunting because it's very cavernous. It echoes a lot. Uh, there's people outside always making noise. It's very weird for me. Um, it's, of all the settings I've shot my podcast in, uh, this is probably the most difficult for me to record in. Uh, but it's been a fun adventure and a, a really interesting uh, learning curve, how to, how to avoid echo as much as possible. I'm working on getting a carpet in this room and then picking the right time to record when people aren't making a ton of noise and yelling and screaming outside. It's, uh, it's been a very trying task. I want to jump into this next though first. Eight new NFL head coaches were hired this offseason. I want to rank them. I'm going to rank them from worst to best. Uh, the worst hire to the best hire. We'll start with number eight, move all the way up. Uh, it's worth noting, though, the bottom three are hires I don't feel good about. There are three hires in the NFL this offseason that I just don't think, I, I don't have a lot of confidence they're going to work out. 
There are two in the middle I feel kind of lukewarm about. I'm on the fence. They could go either way. And the top three are hires I feel really, really strongly that they are going to succeed. So we'll talk. We'll start with number eight, the worst, and we'll go up from there. Number eight, the worst coaching hire of the 2018 NFL offseason was the Packers hiring Matt LaFleur. Matt LaFleur is a 39-year-old head coach. This is his first head coaching job. Um, he's a former quarterback coach for the Falcons and the Redskins. He was also the offensive coordinator for the Rams two years ago, and most recently, last year, the offensive coordinator for the Tennessee Titans. He's got a lot of ties to Sean McVay, and that, that's a good move. Like I think he, as a coach, as an NFL offensive coach, could be very successful. The problem is not Matt LaFleur. Matt LaFleur is not the issue here, necessarily. The problem is his quarterback, Aaron Rodgers. Two big reasons, two big problems with Aaron Rodgers are this. One is his salary cap. He's making $33.5 million a year. His base salary next year in 2019 is $20 million. He's going to take up a large majority of the Packers cap room for years to come. I don't look around the league and see a lot of quarterbacks. Let's just be honest. The highest paid quarterbacks in the NFL do not win Super Bowls. They, don't, they didn't even make the playoffs this year. That's a problem. I think that's going to bog down the Packers for years to come. Here's the bigger problem. I do not believe Aaron Rodgers is very coachable. I don't believe this. I've heard this from many people. Uh, former Packers tight end Jermichael Finley recently talked about how he doesn't listen to his coaching. And it, it shows on the field. We saw Aaron Rodgers this last season run Mike McCarthy out of town. Mike McCarthy, a former Super Bowl winning head coach, Aaron Rodgers got rid of him. You can, you can mince words all you want. That's exactly what happened. Here's the other problem. The Packers' new head coach, Matt LaFleur, is 39 years old. In contrast, Aaron Rodgers is 35. If he doesn't listen to Mike McCarthy, a Super Bowl-winning head coach, a veteran in this league, a guy who's been around for a long, long time, why would he listen to a 39-year-old coach, Matt LaFleur, a guy who's only four years older than him? There's no way. There's no way Aaron Rodgers is going to listen to Matt LaFleur long-term. Would things get dicey if they struggle at all? He's just going to write him off. What Matt LaFleur is for the Packers is a babysitter for Aaron Rodgers. I do not see Matt LaFleur working out with the Packers long-term. Number seven, the second worst hire of this NFL offseason is the Broncos hiring Vic Fangio. Uh, again, I don't have anything against Vic Fangio. He's the former Bears defensive coordinator. He did a great job with the Bears last year. Uh, look, and, and honestly, the, Bear, the Broncos defense stands to do really well. They have Bradley Chubb, a great defensive end. They also have Von Miller. The problem, though, is there are reports that the Broncos are drafting a quarterback this year, which means they're going to have a rookie quarterback and Case Keenum on their roster. If we look back at the history of rookie quarterbacks and defensive coaches, it simply doesn't work. It's not, there's, one, there's one example recently where a rookie quarterback and a defensive-minded head coach have worked out. It's Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson. Other than that, it hasn't worked. Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll are the exception to the rule. They are not the rule. Here's the rule. If you look around the league, here's what we see historically, at least in the last couple of years. Last year with the Jets, Todd Bowles, a defensive-minded head coach, got fired after one season with rookie quarterback Sam Darnold. Similarly, same year, Cardinals got fired their head coach, Steve Wilkes, after one season with rookie quarterback huh, Josh Rosen. We saw the Bears fire John Fox after one year with Mitch Trubisky. We saw the Rams fire Jeff Fisher after one year with Jared Goff. My point is this. Rookie quarterbacks and defensive-minded head coaches are not a good combination. Not to mention all of the quarterbacks in next year's draft class, the 2019 draft class, 
none of them are particularly talented. None of them are highly touted. That's going to really hurt. Their, the quarterbacks coming into next year's draft class need really good offensive coaching. And the Broncos have not hired a coach that can give a rookie quarterback really good coaching. And so sadly for Vic Fangio, I think he's going to struggle. That leads us to the third worst hire of the NFL offseason, which is the which was the Miami Dolphins hiring Brian Flores, the Patriots' former defensive play caller and linebackers coach. Again, this is something, uh, it's just my belief. I don't think defensive-minded head coaches and young quarterbacks work very well together. Historically, they don't. I love Brian Flores. I'm a big fan of his. I hope I am dead wrong. I hope he succeeds. But I'm not going to rank him very highly on this list because he's got a young first-time head coach, defensive-minded head coach with a likely rookie quarterback. The reason why he's slightly higher than Vic Fangio is this. There's a chance that the Miami Dolphins trade for Nick Foles. I don't know if that works or not, but hey, at least Nick Foles isn't a rookie quarterback. So that would break my one record. That broke the tie for me. So Brian Flores is slightly higher than Vic Fangio with the Denver Broncos. Here's the other problem with Brian Flores to the Dolphins. The Dolphins play in the AFC East. So not only does that mean they're going to play the Patriots two times a year, they're also going to be the only team in the AFC East that doesn't have a quarterback. Massive, massive problem. I do not see Brian Flores working long-term with the Miami Dolphins. So those are the three I feel really badly about. I don't believe in the Packers, the Broncos, or the Miami Dolphins head coaching hires. Now let's talk about two head coaches I feel kind of lukewarm about. Um... I, I don't know. We're working our way up from worst to best. The next hire that I feel okay about is uh, Cliff Kingsbury with the Arizona Cardinals. He's a, he's a good young coach. He's got some good offensive schemes. Um, he's going to have second-year quarterback Josh Rosen, a guy I think could be successful in the NFL. And uh, one benefit that will help Cliff Kingsbury with the Arizona Cardinals is that in the NFL, he doesn't have to worry about recruiting. That really hurt him at Texas Tech. He was never able to recruit top talent to Texas Tech, um, but it still isn't a, a great sign that he struggled at Texas Tech. If you remember, Cliff Kingsbury was the former Texas Tech head coach. He got fired. Then he was given the offensive coordinator job at USC and then promoted and got given a job after two weeks to be the Arizona Cardinals head coach. In six years with Texas Tech, Cliff Kingsbury went 35 and 40. 35 wins, 40 losses, and uh, in 2018, his team went 5-7. and seven. They fired Cliff Kingsbury. That does not serve well. I don't know. It's hard to swallow a guy who wasn't successful in college. Why could he be successful in the NFL? We'll find out. I feel lukewarm about it. We, I could be wrong. I could be right. I don't know what to feel about it yet. Um, I think that hiring a good offensive mind with Josh Rosen ideally works on paper. But again, Cliff Kingsbury has not been successful in the past as a head coach. So we just got to wait and see. Another middle-of-the-road hire um, is the Bengals hiring Zach Taylor to be their head coach. He's a, he was a Rams quarterback coach last year. He's a really young guy. He's 35 years old. And uh, here's why it's another middle-of-the-road hire. Look, he's, he's a young coach. He's got great offensive schemes. Um, I put him higher on the list because of Andy Dalton. He does, whether you believe in Andy Dalton or not, we can all agree Andy Dalton is a solid, average, middle-of-the-road quarterback um, and I think that will benefit Zach Taylor to have some kind of experience at quarterback. And that gives him a leg up on Cliff Kingsbury, who has an unproven second-year quarterback, Josh Rosen. So, so far on the list, we've had the worst coaching hire is Matt LaFleur with the Packers. He's number eight. 
Number seven, the Broncos, Vic Fangio. Number six, the Dolphins, Brian Flores. Number five, Cliff Kingsbury with the Cardinals. And number four, Zach Taylor with the Bengals. Now let's move on to three hires I feel really, really good about in the NFL. Number three and two are neck and neck. They are both two coaches that got hired to help young second-year quarterbacks. And really what it came down to for me was which team needed their coach most. So the third best hire in the NFL offseason so far was the Browns hiring Freddie Kitchens to be their head coach. If you remember, the Browns fired their former head coach midway through last year's season. They got rid of Hugh Jackson. They, and the, what they did was promoted their offensive court, their, their quarterback coach, Freddie Kitchens, to offensive coordinator. Freddie Kitchens did a great job last year with Baker Mayfield. He has now been hired as the head coach. This is his first head coaching job, but here's why I like it. Freddie Kitchens already has an established relationship with the Browns quarterback, Baker Mayfield. In fact, Baker Mayfield was fantastic last year. He set the rookie record for touchdown passes with 27. And um, even though he's never been a head coach before, that's why he's last on this list of the three coaches I feel really good about. I still think it's a great move. I believe in him. And I think, again, the relationship with Baker Mayfield is why this could work really, really well in Cleveland. Now, the second best head coaching hire, I know it's a weird one. I never thought I would say this is the Jets hiring Adam Gase, the former Miami Dolphins head coach. Remember, he was fired by the Dolphins earlier last season. And uh, in three seasons with the Dolphins, he was, had 23 wins and 25 losses. However, the problem you can argue is he never had consistent quarterback play. Ryan Tannehill, his franchise quarterback with Miami, was hurt every single year. In 2016, they went 10-6, and six, had a good year. Then in 2017, Ryan Tannehill got hurt. And they had to pull out Jay Cutler out of retirement to be their quarterback. They went 6-10. and 10. That's hard to overcome. When your franchise quarterback gets injured and is out for the season, it's really hard to salvage your year. And that's actually what Adam Gase did. Going 6-10 and 10 is admirable when your whole plan had to be scrapped and reset. Now, in 2018, Ryan Tannehill got hurt again. And what's more interesting about this is, despite losing their franchise quarterback, Adam Gase still found a way to win games. He won games with... Brock Osweiler at quarterback. He beat the Bears. The Bears, fantastic defense. Adam Gase beat the Bears with Brock Osweiler at quarterback. Let that sink in. Brock Osweiler, the massive bust who didn't work out after Peyton Manning left, who got hired. He repeatedly failed in the NFL. Adam Gase beat the fantastic Bears defense with Brock Osweiler. I don't know. That means something to me. Uh, Gase can really coach quarterbacks. That's his strong suit. So pairing him with second-year quarterback Sam Darnold in New York that's a pairing I feel really good about. He also knows the division really well. He's going to be eager to beat the Dolphins. And uh, despite I know Adam Gase's weird eyes in that interview, I feel really, really good about Adam Gase as the head coach of the New York Jets. Now, the best hire of the 2018 NFL offseason, in my opinion, was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers hiring Bruce Arians to be their head coach. If you don't remember, Bruce Arians is the former Cardinals head coach. He also was the Colts interim head coach when Chuck Pagano was getting cancer treatments. In five years with the Cardinals, Bruce Arians dominated. He was 49 and 30 as a head coach, 49 wins, 30 losses. And uh, really the reason why he retired in the first place, it was a perfect storm that led to Bruce Arians' retirement. He had some health issues. His starting quarterback, Carson Palmer, was retiring. He said, look, I'm going to hang it up, go focus on my personal life. I am so glad to see him back in coaching. We often forget Andrew Luck had a great rookie year. That was because of Bruce Arians. Bruce Arians really, really helped Andrew Luck in his rookie year 
and, and developed him as a quarterback. Not only is Bruce Arians a quarterback guy, though, he's a no BS kind of guy. He, he plays you hard and he plays you really straight. He doesn't beat around the bush. He will directly tell you how he feels. He's very honest. He's very open. If you hear him in interviews, he cusses far too much. He gets in trouble on radio interviews. That's going to be really, really good for the Buccaneers quarterback, Jameis Winston. Bruce Arians, the reason why he's the best hire of the 2018 NFL offseason is Bruce Arians might be single-handedly saving the Buccaneers franchise because he might be saving the career of their quarterback, Jameis Winston. Jameis Winston needs help. He's had problems off the field. He's had problems on the field. He's been okay, but he's needed better coaching. This might be the move that helps Jameis Winston and continues his career. Jameis Winston hasn't played awful. Look, he's had a 61% completion percentage, 88 touchdowns, 58 interceptions in the last couple of years. But again, off the field issues have really, really been the problem for Jameis Winston. And Bruce Arians is a stand-up guy. He's a guy that will be hard on Jameis. He'll keep him in line. I think it's going to be massively, massively helpful for Jameis Winston and his career to have a guy, a leader, a veteran, a guy who shoots him straight like Bruce Arians around that franchise. And uh, if the Buccaneers had to give up on Jameis Winston, they'd have to completely reset their entire franchise. They'd be rebuilding. They'd be tanking again. So bringing in Bruce Arians and hoping he can help revive Jameis Winston's career is a huge move. And I think that is why hiring Bruce Arians makes that the best NFL head coaching hire of the 2018 NFL offseason. Okay, uh, we got a lot of stuff to talk about today. We're going to talk about the Alliance of American Football I saw a lot of stuff I liked. We'll talk about um, two teams in the AAF I think are massively in trouble. We'll talk about the quarterbacks a lot. Uh, I do want to talk about two stories first. We'll talk about Clemson in college football. We'll talk about Clemson, and I want to talk about Oklahoma quarterbacks. This episode is entirely about football. If you don't like football, um, I don't know why you would ever listen to my podcast, but uh, we're not going to talk about anything else. On Thursday, I moved a lot of stuff back. I was going to do a podcast on Thursday I had, honestly I had a hard day. It was you know, the anniversary of my brother's death. I had to take time off. On Thursday, we're going to talk about the Tobias Harris trade. Tobias Harris got traded by the Clippers to the 76ers. We'll talk about some stuff with LeBron James and the way NBA players are treated. We'll talk about Khalil Mack, Jimmy Garoppolo. We'll talk about the 49ers. Sorry, we'll talk about the Vikings. A lot of NBA stuff next week, NBA trade deadline stuff. We'll talk about, I'm a little late. I don't care. This weekend, the thing that grabbed my attention was the Alliance of American Football. But first, I do want to say, um, in case you missed it, I don't know how you would have missed it, Clemson just won the College Football National Championship. They throttled Alabama. Alabama lost to Clemson. Clemson beat Alabama 44-16. to And I really believe Clemson's dominance is going to continue. Clemson. You guys get all mad. When I say Clemson the wrong way, I don't really care. You know who I'm talking about. Get over it. Um, Clemson has a great culture in place, and we saw an example of it the other day. Clemson gave two of their assistant coaches raises. Tony Elliott and Jeff Scott are co-offensive coordinators for the Clemson. Clemson? Clemson? I don't care. I'm, I'm going to say it my way. If you don't like it, get out of here. Um, they gave Tony Elliott and Jeff Scott $150,000 pay raises. They now both make a million dollars. So that what that leaves us with is Dabble Sweeney before but Dabble Sweeney before his race will probably get a raise this offseason. Dabble Sweeney makes six million dollars. Brent Venables, a defensive coordinator, makes two point two million dollars. And now Jeff Scott and Tony Elliott both make a million dollars each. Here's what that tells us. Clemson takes care of their guys. 
Clemson, this is the reason why Clemson has been successful for years and why it's going to continue. They have built a really good culture with good coaches that invest in their players, and the university is paying it forward. They're taking care of their coaches saying, we'll pay you more money. We will keep you around. We want to keep this going and keep our long run extended. That is what's very, very fascinating and really, really cool about the culture that Clemson has put forth. Um, it's worth noting, basically only Ohio State compared to this in the last couple of years. Ohio State last year had three assistants making more than a million dollars. That now has ended. Only one of them do. Uh, Ryan Day, one of the assistants who made a million dollars, got promoted to head coach at Ohio State. And Greg Schiano, the other one of the assistants who is making more than a million dollars has been hired by the New England Patriots to be their defensive coordinator. So now the only Ohio State assistant coach that makes more than a million dollars is defensive coordinator Alex Grinch. So again, um, what we're seeing is Clemson's unprecedented. They are believing their coaches. They're paying their coaches a lot of money to keep them around. And if Clemson dominates Alabama for years to come, this will be the difference. Alabama has not been able to keep assistant coaches around. They don't want to work with Nick Saban long-term. They don't get paid very well. Everybody who coaches with Nick Saban sees Alabama as a stepping stone, a chance to be there for a year. It's like prison. It's like punishment. You be there. You do your time. You get out, and you move on to greener pastures. Clemson is not seen as a stepping stone. It's seen as a landing spot. It's a place you're rewarded to coach with Clemson. You get paid well. You get to be around really good people, and you get to win a lot. And that difference in culture is why Clemson not only dominated Alabama this year, but why I think their dominance will continue down the road. Before we get into the Alliance of American Football, I want to make a prediction. I'm going to drink some water first. Uh, this is something that's going to make a lot of people mad. So, um, <clears throat> this might bother some people. I know that a lot, look, a lot of my opinions make people very, very mad all the time. Someone's going to ma get mad no matter what you say. Um, but this is one I feel really strongly about. I strongly, strongly believe graduate transfer Jalen Hurts will be the starting quarterback for Oklahoma next year. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Jalen Hurts. It has more to do with their incoming quarterback, Spencer Rattler. Spencer Rattler will not start for Oklahoma in 2019 unless Jalen Hurts gets injured. Um, but I look at Jalen Hurts, the graduate transfer from Alabama going to Oklahoma. He's mature. He's wise well beyond his years. He understands leadership. And I'm really concerned in contrast with their quarterback recruit, Spencer Rattler. Spencer Rattler is the top quarterback in the 2019 high school class. He's a top, he's a, a five-star quarterback. He's the only five-star quarterback in the 2019 quarterback class. And I look at him and believe he has a maturity issue. I'm sorry. I know that makes people uncomfortable. I look at him and see a kid who doesn't understand how to be mature and how to be a leader you want as a college, from a college quarterback. He got in trouble in high school. And now if you look at his Instagram profile, you see a kid who's selling shoes and selling clothes all around. Um, and he's also, he's like live streaming in Panda Express. And the way he carries himself, you're very flippantly talking about, oh, of course I'm going to start at Oklahoma and really talking very weirdly publicly about Jalen Hurts. Not only does he not seem focused on football, Spencer Rattler doesn't seem focused on football. He doesn't seem to have the maturity it takes to be a quarterback in college. Again, maturity is a very, very necess important necessity for a college quarterback. I don't think he has that. I don't think Spencer Rattler has the maturity right now as an 18-year-old kid, whoever old, maybe he's 19, I don't know. And he could down the road, right? He could change. I hope he changes. But right now, I do not think Spencer Rattler has the humility or the maturity to be the leader of the Oklahoma franchise, to be the leader of the Oklahoma 
football program. I don't see that from Spencer Rattler. I don't think he's going to beat out Jalen Hurts. I think he also might struggle. If you look back at a history of five-star quarterbacks in college football, most of them, the majority of them all transfer. Max Brown, Jacob Eason, even guys who are stable, who have very, very, do not, even guys who don't have problems with maturity end up transferring and leaving. And when I see a guy like Spencer Rattler with a lot of red flags, a lot of what appear to be maturity issues, that makes me really, really concerned. I hope I'm wrong. I don't mean to make people mad. I'm not rooting against him. I hope he gets his stuff together. I hope he's fantastic. But right now, Spencer Rattler's actions do not inspire a lot of confidence. And I do not think Spencer Rattler will be the quarterback in 2019 for the University of Oklahoma. I know a lot of people are, there are a lot of rumors about that. Uh, I think Oklahoma got Jalen Hurts. They're lucky to have Jalen Hurts. And um, I'm, I'm very concerned that Spencer Rattler might have issues down the road because of his maturity, because of his lack of humility in the Oklahoma football program. And he might indeed transfer. That's what happens to most five-star quarterbacks, especially when they struggle early. I think it's very possible Spencer Rattler might struggle early at the University of Oklahoma. I'm sorry to say that. I don't, I don't feel good about that. Um, but that's what I see watching from the outside. Uh, again, his actions don't inspire a lot of confidence. Okay, uh, we'll talk about the AF. We're going to talk about what we learned from week one of the Alliance of American Football. We're going to talk about Mike Singletary, the Atlanta Legends. We're going to rank all eight teams. We'll talk about the best quarterbacks. I'll tell you just what I saw. I had a lot of takeaways from the first weekend of the Alliance of American Football. I'm going to drink some water first. Um, I hope you watched. I really did. I, I enjoyed it. The Alliance of American Football kicked off its inaugural season this weekend. And uh, it was fantastic. Look, I loved it. I think it's well worth watching. And apparently a lot of other people did too. Here are the stats um, from opening night on CBS. The, the initial game brought in 2.9 million viewers. That's a big, big deal because it beat out the basketball game on CBS. The NBA game between the Oklahoma City Thunder and Houston Rockets on ABC only brought in 2.5 million people, uh, million viewers. That's a big deal. That, what that shows is that people have a desire to watch the AAF. I don't know if that will continue. I'm sure a lot of people tuned in. They made the decision, do I want to keep watching this or not? Who knows if next week we'll have as many viewers with the AAF. Honestly, I hope it keeps growing. Um, but I really, really strongly believe in the Alliance of American Football. I think they have a great plan. I think they have good people backing it. And I love their self-awareness. They made it abundantly clear the AAF is a developmental league. This is like minor league football. They're not trying to take on the NFL. They're trying to do a smaller league, helping players get ready and move up to a bigger stage like the NFL. And that couldn't, by the way, a lot of people, when I said that initially about the AAF, a lot of people gave me pushback. So this is a, a competitor of the NFL. No, it's not. It's not at all. And it could not have been made more clear by the Arizona, by, than by the Arizona Hotshots head coach, Rick Neuheisel. In his pregame speech to his team, this is what Rick Neuheisel said. He said, I don't care about the scoreboard. I care more about what you put on tape. That is your business card. The score will take care of itself. What he's telling us is saying, you're trying to earn a name for yourself and move up to the next level. That is what the AAF is all about. That is fantastic. This is minor league football, and it's good for everybody. I am fan. I think it's interesting. I think fans who like football and fans who love football are going to enjoy it. People like me. I think players get a chance to make money. You don't realize how many people get out of college football and have no plan, have no way to make money and, and just need to figure something out. 
This will give more of those players who I know a lot of guys like that who graduated, played, you know, played for years in college football, gave a lot to a program and said, now what? Don't have a plan. The AAF gives those people a chance to not only buy time to figure it out, but to play football professionally, because that's what they've done their entire lives with most of these guys' case. It's also really good for the NFL. It develops players. We're going to see offensive lines massively improve because of the Alliance of American Football. The way What happened a couple of years ago is the NCAA cut practice time, and the result on the NFL and the result on football in general was that offensive linemen didn't have enough time to practice and get reps. And we saw offensive line play in the NFL very quickly decline because of that rule. This now solves that problem. It gives players more reps to get ready before they start in the NFL. Uh, what we also saw was um, offensive line play and quarterback play went from re- ranged from really, really bad to really, really good. Um, if you're a football fan like me, look, I, I love football. It's my favorite thing in the world. The AAF is really fun to watch because you see a lot of mistakes. You see a lot of people make really, really bad, bad plays, bad decisions, bad mistakes. And if you like learning about football, the AAF is far more interesting to watch to me than the NFL because there's more, more mistakes more frequently. It's kind of like watching a preseason football game. You'll see a lot of small things, missed assignments. Uh, here's a great example. Mike Martz is the quarterback, uh, is the Mike Martz is the head coach for the San Diego Fleet. He's a legendary offensive-minded head coach. Their offense really struggled and looked really bad, but the reason was because a lot of people were out of position. Over time, we're going to see guys not only get in the right spot, but learn what they're doing. There's a reason why all the people in the AAF are not in the NFL. They had trouble in training camp last year, lining up, getting in the right spot, running the right routes. That, I think, is going to show later in the season, week one to ten, I think the San Diego fleet are going to make the greatest improvement over the course of the season. Another thing we saw I really, really liked was really, really cool audio clips. Um, All the quarterbacks and all the coaches are mic'd up, which means you get an insane level of access into their huddles, into their conversations on the sideline. And what I want to do is I want to point to two instances in particular where I saw something that I thought was really, really cool. The first one was between the San Diego fleet and the San Antonio commanders. There was a meeting on the sideline before a third down for the commanders. And Logan Woodside, the quarterback for the commanders, went over to head coach Mike Riley. They had a conversation about it. And it was very clear the players had a play they believed in. They said, we want to run this play. We think it can work. Here's why. And they pitched it to him. They convinced Mike Riley to let them run it. Now, sadly, the play didn't work, right? (laughs) Logan Woodside missed the throw, but the guy was open. And it was just really cool to see the way players and coaches interact on the sideline and how that whole dynamic works. The other thing I saw that I really, really liked as a result of being mic'd up all weekend was the post-game meeting between the two coaches, Mike Martz and Mike Riley, the San Diego Fleet head coach and the San Antonio Commanders head coach. They, you know, the commanders beat the fleet and they met at midfield and shook hands and had a conversation. I've always wondered what that was like. It was actually really jovial. Two guys who clearly like each other and have an interesting relationship. They were very friendly between each other. I love getting to see that and getting to hear the audio and the sound clips between each other. I've always wondered what that looks like. And what I'm really curious about is do later down the road, do we see a coach who's really mad and pissed off? Do we get to see a coach who's mad, shake hands with another coach he's mad at and hear that sound bite? That would be entertainment gold. That is what I want to see. And that's what the AF did all weekend was provide just fantastic, fantastic entertainment all around. 
There are two other cool features about the AAF I want to talk about before we get into who won and who lost and why and what happened. Um, two cool features about the Alliance of American Football. One is the bonus structure. What it does, every player makes the same base salary. Your first year in the AAF, you make $70,000. Your second year, you make $80,000. And your third year in the AAF, you make about $100,000. However, you don't just get the base salary. Players get a lot of bonuses for doing cool stuff, for winning games, for engaging on social media. That's really cool because it builds the fan base. Like in San Antonio, where they haven't had a football team for years, engaging with the fans on social media uh, in San Antonio, excuse me, and building that fan base and building excitement, that's really cool. And the fact they incentivize that is fantastic. They also incentivize players getting interceptions or turnovers. Not like the NFL does, but if I pick off and if I get an interception, everybody on the defense gets a, gets a, what's the word, gets a bonus because of that interception. Everyone gets a, an incentive for that interception. So everyone has incentive to work hard and put forth their best effort. I also like the way that players are given bonuses for sales of their jerseys and things that use their likeness. It's probably a nice jump from college football where teams make a ton of money off of your likeness and you don't get any money from it to now finally getting a bonus and getting paid a little bit for the money you're bringing in for your franchise. Here's the last thing I think is really, really cool about the AAF before we jump into, before we leave the logistics behind and get on to other stuff. The medical staff at every single game is employed by the league. This is a difference between the NFL that I really, really like. Uh, I don't know that this happens in the NFL. I sure, I'm sure it does. I just can't prove it. I don't want to talk about that too much. But we don't know. If a team is hired by a franchise, their best interest is to keep players on the field to help the franchise. Their employer is the team, not the league. When a medical staff's employment and where their paychecks come from comes from the league itself, their best interest is keeping players healthy and keeping players safe. I don't know. I'm not accusing anybody in the NFL of any kind of, you know, withholding information or trying to do whatever to get players back on the field. I'm sure it does happen. I don't know. Um, but now we know there's a complete non-bias between the teams getting medical staff help for play, getting players help from the medical staff. That's a really interesting difference that I like is we know the medical staff's only interest is safety first, keeping players healthy rather than helping teams win games. It's a notable difference. I'm sure that the former NFL players involved with the AAF or the player, people that said, we want that, we want that. It's very important. I really like that notable difference. And in general, I really like the Alliance of American Football. I think it's fantastic. A great product that I really, really believe in. Let's get into the nitty gritty, the, the interesting, weird, you know, nerdy stuff about the Alliance of American Football. I want to start with this. The AAF team, the Memphis Express have a really, really big problem. The problem is they don't trust their quarterbacks. And look, I get it. The Memphis Express's quarterback is Christian Hackenberg. Christian Hackenberg went 7 for 18, passing, had only 54 yards and an interception. Like, he didn't play great. I'm not defending his play. And even when they put in the back of Brandon uh, Silvers, he wasn't much better. He also threw an interception. But a big part of why the Express's quarterbacks didn't do well was because of their coaching. The play calling was terrible. It was horribly predictable. And here's one sequence, for example, I want to talk about with the Memphis Express. They ran the ball 11 or 12 times in a row, completely just pounding the rock over and over and over again, never running play action. And what's even more surprising about the fact they ran the ball 12 times in a row was that it worked. <laughs> they were moving the ball down the field. But what they never did was run play action, which means they never faked the ran 
faked the run and used it to, to utilize the fact that players were sucking up to stop the run and throwing the ball downfield. When you run the ball that many times, it gives you a huge advantage that the Memphis Express didn't use. They never used play action, and it was just baffling. I didn't understand why they weren't using the advantage they had to their benefit. But it's even weirder and even worse of an offense is that when the Memphis Express did finally throw the ball, they didn't even try deception. They went with five wide receivers, didn't even have a running back in the backfield, making their offense entirely one-dimensional, all run or all pass. They only threw the ball on third and long, and they clearly just did not trust their quarterback at all. What it showed was they're heavily predictable. You know, if the only time they're going to throw the ball is third and 15, hey, we're going to run a defense to stop passing. It's easy. And they weren't setting up their quarterbacks to succeed. It's awful, it's predictable, and it's bad coaching. And I think the biggest problem, I think the root of the problem for the Memphis Express on offense is our head coach, Mike Singletary. Mike Singletary is the former head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, and he's always struggled with quarterbacks. This is a guy who was a Hall of Fame NFL linebacker, right? He is a highly accomplished football player. The problem is he never, ever trusts his quarterbacks. As long as he's been a head coach, this has always been a problem with his. Mike Singletary sees his quarterbacks as an obstacle to overcome rather than a valuable asset you can use to win games. Here's my case in point. is For three years, Mike Singletary was the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. He went 18-22. and 22, 18 wins, 22 losses. When Mike Singletary was fired, he said this. He said, in this league... You got to have a quarterback if you want to win games. Here is the problem. <laughs> Mike Singletary's quarterback was Alex Smith. And what Mike Singletary insinuated was that Alex Smith was the reason why he couldn't win games. Rather than the coach taking the blame, rather than the coach saying, we got to coach better, we got to coach our players better, he blamed the quarterback. And what's even more bizarre and even more hilarious, actually, is that ever since Mike Singletary was fired by the 49ers. Alex Smith has been really, really effective. We've learned that with good coaching, hey, guess what? Alex Smith can actually play quarterback. He's not the greatest, but he's really solid. He's above average. He's better than Kirk Cousins, who makes a whopping amount of money. Alex Smith is an above average quarterback. You just need to give him good head coaching. Here's the stats. Since Mike Singletary left the 49ers, Alex Smith has had a 64.78% percent completion percentage 142 touchdowns 48 interceptions not to mention multiple playoff berths Alex Smith proved Mike Singletary wrong Mike Singletary was horribly horribly wrong about Alex Smith and the problem was Mike Singletary just never believed in him Mike Singletary never even gave him a chance to succeed again the entire approach from Mike Singletary is that our team's going to play really good defense and his attitude is that they got to survive the fact they have to have a quarterback. He doesn't want a quarterback. He doesn't believe in quarterbacks, and he doesn't see them as an asset. Again, Mike Singletary sees quarterbacks as an obstacle to overcome. That is a terrible, terrible approach to being a football coach. It's not going to work, especially on an AAF team where your goal is to develop young quarterbacks. Um, you know, Memphis quarterback Christian Hackenberg is in a terrible, terrible position. His coach, his coach, Mike Singletary, not only doesn't trust him, he's probably never going to trust him no matter what happens. And that's just a toxic environment to play quarterback. Mike Singletary is a massive, massive problem for the Memphis Express. And the Memphis, Memphis Express are always going to struggle at quarterback 
because of their head coach, Mike Singletary, and his approach to coaching quarterbacks. It's always going to be a problem as long as he's there in Memphis. How about another team that's in trouble? <laughs> the Memphis Express are bad. They're in trouble. Um, a lot of it's because of their quarterback, and a lot of it is because of their coach and his approach. That rhymed. It's a crime. I don't like it. Shut up. Stop talking, Zach. Actually, guess what? That's what we do on podcasts. All we do is talk. Um, the Atlanta Legends, an AAF team, are in trouble. The Atlanta Legends are in trouble. A month before the season started in mid-January, the Atlanta Legends head coach, Brad Childress, stepped down. I have no idea why he stepped down. Um, if you remember, Brad Childress was the Vikings head coach for five seasons. He went 39-35, and 35, which is successful, a winning record, 39 wins, 35 losses. He also took the Vikings to the NFC Championship game in 2009 with Brett Favre. And uh, that's a big loss. Losing your head coach a month before the season starts is never good. Now, the new head coach of the Atlanta Legends is longtime NFL assistant Kevin Coyle. He's never been a head coach before. So that's right off the bat. Your head coaching situation is really, really concerning in Atlanta. But it gets worse. Offensive coordinator Michael Vick, former NFL quarterback, is also no longer the offensive coordinator. I have no idea what happened. Uh, but what we know is that two games of four, two days before the first game of the season, the first game Saturday, on Thursday before the first game, Michael Vick suddenly stepped down, said not involved anymore. Um, he's taking what is called an advisory role, which I have no idea what that means. Uh, look, I'm not in the room. I don't know. Maybe it's a good change. Maybe Mike Vick was a terrible coach. Who knows? Um, but what we saw in the season opener was a team that lacked leadership, was very, very disorganized. The Atlanta Apollo, the Orlando Apollos walloped the Atlanta Legends 40-6. to And, um, man, the team struggled. The Atlanta Legends looked bad. They looked disorganized. They missed a bunch of assignments. They got physically out-dominated. They got physically dominated. And uh, they didn't look prepared to play. The Atlanta Legends, because of their turmoil at coach, they were in trouble. They busted coverages. They missed blocks. They had poor execution. They were, again, physically dominated up front. And it looked like at one point in the fourth quarter, they just stopped trying. That is a horrible, horrible start to a franchise for the Atlanta Legends. Uh, it's most alarming, again, because to have a team give up, to have a team quit and stop trying, that's awful in a league like the AAF. In the AAF, the entire goal is for players to put out a really good product. They're trying to show their skills. It doesn't really matter if you win. You're trying to put on tape the best version of yourself to show NFL teams you can play and try to move up. And uh, it... <laughs> Man, the fact they didn't do that, it shows the Atlanta Legends are a mess. They have not a very extremely talented roster. They have a first-time head coach who got thrust into the position a month before the first game. They lost their offensive coordinator. Not to mention, he might have been the problem. Look, I don't want to... Michael Vick might have been the problem, right? The team looked so disorganized, their offense was awful. Maybe that's because they weren't put in a position to be successful by their former offensive coordinator, Mike Vick. I don't know. But the point is, the Atlanta Legends are in trouble. They looked entirely unprepared. Guys were out of position most of the time, more than any other team we saw this weekend. I know that's a lot of what we saw in the AAF opening weekend was guys being out of position. The worst offenders were the Atlanta Legend. They appeared to give up in the fourth quarter. They got physically dominated. My point is the Atlanta Legends are in really, really big trouble, and they're off to a terrible start as a professional football franchise. <clears throat> Uh, here's what I want to do next. After week one of the Alliance of American Football, we saw eight teams play. I want to rank every single team. We'll start with the worst. 
leading all the way up to the best. So we'll start with the worst team I saw in week one of the Alliance of American Football. It was the Atlanta Legends. Completely disorganized. They busted coverages. They missed blocks. They had poor execution. They had a lack of effort in the fourth quarter. And they got physically dominated. All of that is terrible. It's because of, I think, their turmoil at head coach and turmoil at offensive coordinator. But the worst team in the Alliance of American Football is, in fact, the Atlanta Legends. Number seven, the second worst team in the AAF is the Memphis Express. Uh, they got shut out by the Birmingham, Birmingham Iron 26-0. to zero. Look, they're not, The reason why they're not the worst team in the AF, despite what it might look in the box score, is they had some bad breaks. They had some bad calls, some unfortunate breaks. They had a touchdown called back. They had a big catch by the Birmingham Iron that probably shouldn't have been called, but there wasn't enough evidence to overturn it. Uh, here's the big problem with the Memphis Express. Their defense is solid. I was actually impressed. Uh, the problem is they didn't get any help from their offense. The Memphis Express's offense is awful. They ran the ball literally 12 times in a row, and they never used play action. They never did anything creative. They were super predictive, uh, predictable, excuse me, and uh, they don't trust their quarterbacks. The Memphis Express are going to have a really long season as long as they don't put their quarterbacks in position to succeed, which they haven't so far, and uh, that is why the Memphis Express are the second worst team in the entire alliance of American football. Number six, the, the third worst team, number six out of eight, the San Diego Fleet um, are in trouble. They're not, they're not awful. I think this is the team, if any team has a massive improvement that starts at the bottom and quickly moves up to the top, it will be the San Diego Fleet. That's because of their head coach, Mike Martz. Mike Martz has a brilliant offensive scheme. The problem is Mike Martz's offense relies on execution. It relies on players adhering to really fine details and following a very strict plan. And let's just be honest, there's a reason why players in the Alliance of American Football are not in the NFL. They couldn't follow those plans on other teams. And so we saw the the San Diego fleet miss blocks, they missed assignments. And uh, this might improve with time, we don't know. But right now, they're always going to be limited by their quarterback. Mike Berkovici, the guy they started on Saturday, really struggled. Who knows, Philip Nelson might be the answer, I don't know. Um, but right now, the San Diego Fleet are in trouble. They're the third worst team in the Alliance of American Football. Now we're starting to get into teams that are solid. We'll start with this. The fifth team, the fifth best team, number five out of eight in the Alliance of American Football are the Salt Lake Stallions. They're coached by Dennis Erickson. Here's what I saw that I really liked. They have a great offensive line, and I really like their quarterback, Josh Woodrum. The problem was Josh Woodrum got injured at halftime. Uh, they're really well matched with the Arizona with the Arizona Hotshots until their quarterback got hurt. Um, I'm I'm really curious if any team. So I think the San Diego Fleet can improve the most from week one to ten. But if any team surpri- surprises us and goes from a loss to the Hotshots to really fantastic at the end of the year, it could be the Salt Lake Stallions because of their quarterback. If their quarterback's healthy, they look really good. And when their quarterback's not healthy, they really don't. And so that's the theme we're going to see all through the entire season. I think that's really we got to talk about that now is really, really bad teams could elevate by, with quarterback changes and really, really good teams right now after one week could be terrible if their quarterback gets hurt. This entire league centers around needing to have good quarterbacks. If you don't have a good quarterback, you're really going to struggle and not going to have a lot of success in the Alliance of American football. Number four, the fourth team out of eight, the Arizona Hotshots. Um, I was really impressed. A lot of teams have the Arizona Hotshots number one in their power rankings. I was impressed by their offense. I like their quarterback, John Wolford. He looked fantastic. He made a lot of great throws. Here's what I liked about John Wolford the most. 
John Wolford knew when not to throw the ball. He knew when to throw it away. He knew when to run the ball instead of forcing it into coverage. That's the advantage of having an experienced quarterback like John Wolford, who clearly has a great understanding of defenses. Their offensive line also gave him a lot of time. It's very possible that the Arizona Hotshots have the best quarterback in the entire league. Uh, Rashad Ross had five catches for 103 yards and two touchdowns. And uh, again, they have probably also the best kicker in the Alliance of American Football with Nick Folk. The third best team. Uh, we're now into the top three teams. I'll start with the number three. The Orlando Apollos are my third best team in the Alliance of American Football. Um, look, they dominated the Atlanta Legends 40-6. to six. I think a lot of this truly was the Atlanta Legends are actually terrible unless the Orlando Apollos were dominating. Um, but I go, still got to give them credit. They got a great head coach, Steve Spurrier. I like their quarterback, Garrett Gilbert. He had three touchdowns for 277 yards, three total touchdowns. Garrett Gilbert's a guy who understands it, and um, I'm excited to watch Orlando down the road. Now, my two best teams in the Alliance of American Football are the Birmingham Iron and the San Antonio Commanders. Uh, I texted a buddy of mine. He played defensive line in the NFL. And I said, what do you think? What are your thoughts on week one of the Alliance of American Football? He has a great understanding of what NFL talent on the offensive and defensive line looks like. He's been there. He played in the training camp for the Cleveland Browns. And uh, in his opinion, he said the best team up front, and I agreed with him. What he did was he just confirmed my beliefs, which I was really glad to hear. The number one team in the Alliance of American Football is the San Antonio Commanders. They are the best team in the league. They have a great head coach, Mike Riley, a long time, not only a great guy, long time Oregon State head coach. He's really, really dominant with the Beavers uh, a couple years ago. But they're just a great all around team. Their offensive and defensive lines are fantastic. Their quarterback, Logan Woodside, looked really, really solid. Um, I think Arizona might have the best overall receiver in the league with one receiver, but the best receiving core, the best group of wide receivers in the Alliance of American Football, in my opinion, are the San Antonio Commanders. They have a lot of guys who can win one-on-one matchups downfield, and uh, that is why I think the Commanders are the best team in the Alliance of American Football. That leaves us with the second best team in the league, which is, in fact, the Birmingham Iron. My buddy who played in the NFL said that the Birmingham Iron have a lot of dudes that are fantastic on the offensive and defensive lines, and my analysis was they have the best quarterback in the entire league, Luis Perez. Um... You know, Luis Perez is not, he's not flashy. He's not a guy that a lot of people look to and go, that guy's amazing. But he really was. His decision-making, his ability to put the ball in the right spot repeatedly. Luis Perez, in my opinion, is the best quarterback in this league. They're running back his former number three overall pick, Trent Richardson. And uh, he, had two, he started slow but had two touchdowns in the end. And uh, I, I think they might have the best pass protection as well in the Alliance of American Football. Again, in order. The, worst, the, the best team in the Alliance of American Football is the San Antonio Commanders. The second best team is the Birmingham Iron. The number three team in the Alliance of American Football are the Orlando Apollos. At number five, we have the Arizona Hotshots. Number five, the fifth team in the AAF is the Salt Lake Stallions. Number six, the San Diego Fleet. And in order, we have the Memphis Express are the seventh worst team in the league and the worst team in the entire Alliance of American Football, I think by a long shot, is indeed the Atlanta Legends. Uh, so guys, those are my power rankings for week one of the Alliance of American Football. Uh, we have three topics left I want to talk about. What we're going to do is talk about some of the common mistakes quarterbacks made in the first week. We'll rank the top four quarterbacks in the league, and then I'll talk about why 
I really don't want the XFL to happen now. Now that I've seen week one of the Alliance of American Football, I'm sold, I'm in, I'm good, and I do not want to see the XFL at all down the road. Let's talk about this first. Uh, week one of the Alliance of American Football has ended, and uh, we learned a lot about their quarterbacks. Here's what we learned. We saw a lot of guys make mistakes, and I want to talk about some of the most common mistakes they made week one. One of the most common mistakes we saw was, and this is really for all young quarterbacks paying attention, please listen to this, is a lot of these quarterbacks could not understand and could not recognize where pressure was coming from. And when they did recognize pressure was coming, they looked entirely uncomfortable dealing with it. So again, young quarterbacks, this is extremely important. Listen to the words I'm about to say. A defense blitzing you, a defense bringing extra guys to try to get after the quarterback is a really, really good thing. You want that. You welcome that. You embrace that. It's a numbers game. If a linebacker blitzes, if, if three linebackers all blitz me, yeah, that sucks. I'm probably going to get hit. But what that means is underneath routes in the middle of the field are probably going to be wide open. And if they're not, it means we have man-to-man coverage all across the board. Now, that can't happen in the Alliance of American Football. In the Alliance of American Football, you can only bring a five-man rush. But again, what that means usually is one linebacker's blitzing, and wherever that linebacker's coming from, there's a vacated spot on the defense. So if the team brings five people at the quarterback, it means there's only six people dropped back in pass coverage, and it means you have an advantage with numbers, a matchup and a numbers advantage downfield in passing concepts. So you got to understand, young quarterbacks, you welcome blitzing. You welcome pressure on the quarterback. When they bring extra bodies, you like that. Now, most quarterbacks in the Alliance of American Football Week 1 could not handle that. They were either afraid of pressure or they couldn't recognize where it was coming from and throw the ball to the right spot. And some guys handled it really well. A guy who handled pressure really, really well was Logan Woodside. Logan Woodside was able to recognize pressure and use the ball, use that to his advantage and throw the ball to the right spot when it happened. Now, some guys couldn't figure it out. They couldn't figure out where pressure was coming from. You know, at times, Mike Bercovici, the San Diego Fleet quarterback, simply had no idea pressure was even coming. Or when it did happen, he panicked and he threw the ball up for grabs. All of the above are things you don't want to do. I don't know. I, look, I know that a lot of offensive linemen struggled with missing assignments and their missed blocks, and that happens week one of, in any league, of course. Um, but that was a huge problem was a lot of quarterbacks. Getting hit is one thing. But you got to understand where the pressure is coming from, and you got to understand where to go with the ball. Where's your hot route? If people bring pressure, we like that. It means you have better matchups downfield. It looked like most quarterbacks week one didn't have a plan. When teams brought pressure, they didn't know how to deal with it. They weren't prepared for it, and they panicked. Another common issue we saw week one was situational awareness. In every situation, whether you're backed up on your own goal line or you're in the red zone downfield or you're late in the game with a two-minute drill— Every situation you're in has a certain list of procedures you got to follow. I want to share um, a best example we saw of situational awareness. Uh, first, a lack of situational awareness, and then a really, really good example of situational awareness. So what we saw first was uh, the San Antonio Commanders were on the goal line. Logan Woodside is their quarterback. And because it was third and long, the team they were playing, the San Diego Fleet, dropped eight men into coverage. They dropped a lot of people back. And when you're on the goal line, it means the field's a lot smaller. Everything's a lot quicker. There's less room downfield because the field is a lot shorter. And uh, what happened was Logan Woodside, this, the San Antonio Commanders quarterback, didn't know what to do. 
He didn't know how to take advantage of the fact that they dropped a lot of players and just took a sack. He held on the ball too long, took a sack. Now, in contrast, the Birmingham Iron quarterback, Luis Perez, was in the same situation. The Memphis Express dropped eight people into coverage, and like a snap of the finger, Luis Perez knew exactly what to do. When a team drops eight people into coverage on the goal line, you want to either run the ball as a quarterback because it means there's nobody accounting for you, or find your outlet like a running back, get him the ball quickly and allow him to make a move in space and get into the end zone. Perez saw it immediately. He ran the ball up the middle, got as many yards as he could. That's an example of great situational awareness. Don't force the ball into coverage when there's eight people standing in the end zone in a really tight window where there's nobody open. Instead, take the yards they give you running with your feet or again, check it down to your running back. Allow him to maybe make some people miss and get into the end zone. Luis Perez handled that perfectly. Finally, uh, look, decision-making just in general week one was really, really was bad at times. A lot of people struggled. And uh, look, I know that every single, every single aspect of what I've talked about from a quarterback standpoint is decision-making. And, and I do want to repeat, and I think it's important for people to know, every quarterback in the Alliance of American Football has the physical tools to be successful. Every quarterback has the arm strength. Every quarterback has enough accuracy. Everybody can throw the football at this level. But the mental side of the game is what it comes down to and being calm under pressure, but really understanding what, who's open and why and when to throw the ball into coverage is what makes a big difference for the quarterbacks at this level. And uh, too many guys forced bad throws into double coverage week one. You know, some, sometimes people simply didn't see guys who were wide open. Other times you saw guys, uh, you know, what's his name? Uh, Mike Bergovici took a terrible risk late in the game throwing a ball up in devil coverage. It was picked off on the goal line, ran back for like 50-yard return. That's a big, big problem. Now, one quarterback who not only made great decisions reading coverages, but he knew when not to throw the ball was Arizona Hotshots quarterback John Wolford. What he did so well was not forcing the ball into coverage, but running for yards, getting a pot, turning a, a negative play into positive yards. He said, okay, nobody's open downfield. I'll run for four yards, get tackled or slide or whatever. Or another thing he did really well was just throw the ball away. There's nothing there. Don't force it. Live to see another down. And John Wolford did a great, great job at understanding when to throw the ball away, when to run for three yards and slide, and when to, just for, when to indeed take a risk and throw the ball downfield. Uh, John Wolford made great decisions the entire game, and he's one of the better quarterbacks in the entire league. So those are a lot of the decisions we saw and the mistakes we saw that were most common week one of the Alliance of American Football. It was a lot of guys didn't know how to handle pressure. They didn't know where pressure was coming from. They didn't understand situations, how to deal with them, and they didn't know when to throw the ball away. Instead, they would force the ball into coverage and throw the ball into windows that just weren't open. So after we've done that, I want to now rank the top four Alliance of American Football quarterbacks. These are the top four AAF quarterbacks after one week. Uh, the fourth quarterback, number four, the bottom of the list, is San Antonio Commanders quarterback Logan Woodside. He's not perfect. Um, he lacked situational awareness on the goal line, really struggled with that. But ultimately, it had a really solid game. He made good decisions, threw the ball really well from the pocket, and he handled pressure really, really well. Logan Woodside, when teams blitzed him, when they brought an extra linebacker, he knew where his outlet was. He knew how to replace the blitzer with a football. That's what I like to see. I know he had two interceptions. I know he struggled. He wasn't perfect. He's not going to be perfect. This entire league is made up of players who, frankly, are NFL rejects, but Logan Woodside is among the top half of quarterbacks in the Alliance of American Football. Number three, the third best quarterback in the AAF is Garrett Gilbert, 
the quarterback for the Orlando Apollos, who is 15 for 25 passing at 227 yards, two touchdowns, zero interceptions. He also caught a touchdown, and um, he might have thrown the best deep ball of the weekend. He really has a great arm deep downfield, and uh, I, 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 just, I just like him. Look, he's had NFL experience with the Panthers. I, I want to see more from him, but right now he's my third best quarterback in the Alliance of American Football. That is Garrett Gilbert. I want to now take a minute to mention, give an honorable mention to Josh Woodrum. Josh Woodrum is the quarterback for the Salt Lake Stallions. And um, look, he was 10 for 22 passing at 103 yards, one touchdown, one interception. And uh, he got hurt like one play before halftime. The reason why he's not on this list is I just didn't see enough of him. If he's not hurt next week, if he plays, he's healthy next week. I cannot wait to watch him because he did a really good job understanding pressure, finding windows between linebackers. Frankly, his team had a lot of drops. I think Josh Woodrum might be one of the more undervalued and underappreciated quarterbacks so far in the Alliance of American Football. That leads us to my top two quarterbacks. The two best quarterbacks in the Alliance of American Football are John Wolford and Luis Perez. I'm going to start with number one, the best quarterback. The best quarterback in the entire league is Birmingham Iron quarterback Luis Perez. I know that's controversial. He didn't have a lot of flashy statistics, um, but he's, he's Tom Brady of the Alliance of American Football. He's boring, and he's highly, highly effective. Uh, Luis Perez was 19 for 33 passing at 252 yards, no touchdowns, and no interceptions. But again, boring and highly ineffective. His running back, Trent Richardson, had two touchdowns. They used him a lot later in the game, especially in the red zone. And uh, what Luis Perez does that I love, not only does he understand leadership, there were reports when he was with the Rams that he would beat Sean McVay into the facility. His understanding of the game is impeccable. He really, really has a great understanding of and where to go with the ball in certain situations, how to handle pressure. If you blitz him, he'll make you pay. I love Luis Perez. Again, he's not going to light up the stat room. He's going to be very boring all year. He's probably... A lot of people are gonna, might call him a game manager, but he is fantastic. He really understands where to go with the ball at what times, how to handle situations. His mental understanding of football is just incredible, and that is why, in my opinion, Luis Perez is the best quarterback in the entire league. The second best quarterback in the entire league is John Wolford, the Arizona Hotshots quarterback. Uh, if you want flashy stats, you got him. He's had, he was 18 for 29 passing, 275 yards, four touchdowns, he also ran eight times for 23 yards. John Wolford throws great downfield. He's good in the pocket. He understands when to run, when to not run. But what I love the most was not only the throws he made downfield, but the throws John Wolford didn't make. John Wolford didn't force the ball into coverage. The two quarterbacks who did the best job taking care of the ball were Luis Perez and John Wolford. When guys weren't open, John Wolford didn't force the ball into double coverage. He didn't take unnecessary risks. He tucked it and ran for a couple yards, or he threw the ball away. That patience, you know, that is so, so rare and so, so fantastic. And uh, I just, I love what he did. He limited bad plays. He either ran ball downfield or he threw the ball away. John Wolford is the second best quarterback in the Alliance of American Football. So again, five notable quarterbacks, five notable quarterbacks you want to watch next week in the Alliance of American Football are Garrett Gilbert, Luis Perez, John Wolford, Logan Woodside, and Josh Woodrum. Those are the five quarterbacks I think are the best five quarterbacks and the five quarterbacks you should pay attention to long-term in the Alliance of American Football. Uh, with that said, after watching week one of the Alliance of American Football, 
Uh, not only, I'm sold, right? I love it. I think it's fantastic. And now I really, really do not want the XFL to happen. So if you don't know, uh, the Alliance of American Football and the XFL, the AAF and the XFL are both two proposed professional football leagues. Uh, they're both new. They're both startups. And uh, the Alliance of American Football beat the XFL out of the gate. Right now, the, AA, the XFL is scheduled to start next year in 2020. And I think they just need to admit they got beat out of the gate and <laughs> should abandon their project. I don't want it. I really, really do not want the XFL to happen now. Um, I love the AAF brand. I trust the people involved. They're self-aware. It's a developmental league. They have a tons of former NFL players involved. And I think they're doing it the right way. I really, really like the strategy and the process the AAF is taking. If a developmental league is ever going to work in America, this is how it's going to work. So I, my opinion, I want the AAF to succeed. I do not want the other league. So the AAF is one league. I don't want the other league, the XFL, ever to happen. I want it to stay far away. The XFL is being backed by chairman of the WWE, Jim McMahon. And instead of working with the NFL, the AAF has taken a very partisan approach. They're saying, we want to be partners. We want to feed into your league. We want to be a developmental league for the NFL. In contrast, the XFL is taking the NFL head on. They're trying to make, in their words, not mine, a better product than the NFL. They're trying to innovate the way football is played. I don't like that at all. Um, I think it's stupid. They're trying to cater to people who are mad at Roger Goodell and people who are mad at the NFL. And I just think it's an unsustainable, bad plan. Uh, it's a stupid plan. That's not only not going to work, it's going to fragment the, the market and really, really make it so neither, not only can the AF not succeed, it'll make it so both can't succeed because of the fragmented market. I think it's a mistake. Here's a great example. The XFL is, here's an example of them taking on the NFL head on. The XFL is putting a team in Dallas, meaning they're trying to take on the brand, the Dallas Cowboys. That is so stupid. I just, I don't understand what you're doing. Why would, give a team, give a franchise, give a city that doesn't have a team that wants a team, a, team, a place like Portland, a place like, I think Birmingham was a great spot. San Diego was a genius spot for the Alliance of American football to put a team. Do not take a team on like the Dallas Cowboys head on. That is just so stupid and wrong. Um, look, I'm a fan of the NFL. I'm also a, now a big fan of the AAF, and I want the AAF to succeed, which means I just don't want the XFL to ever happen. I think having the XFL would simply create confusion. I think people would go, which league is that? What team is It's already hard enough to learn eight new teams to make them learn another whole league worth of teams and have other stuff. Why even go there? I just don't think it's smart. I think it's going to create confusion and oversaturate the market. I really, really do not want the XFL to happen at all. Here's my point. I'm good. I love the AAF. I think I love what it stands for. I love the fact that they're trying to help players. It creates a ton of financial incentives. Their medical staff is employed by the league. The, uh, they're doing it the right way. The AAF is made for the players and fans. And I do not want the XFL coming along and screwing that up. I just, I don't, I don't think it's a smart move. I think the AAF could work. I really believe in the Alliance of American Football. I think it's a great idea that could be successful down the road. And I think the, the XFL, another league trying to come in and creating their own market could just fragment the entire, it could fragment the market. It could ruin the chances of both leagues succeeding. And I don't think it needs to happen. The AAF is good. Why try to ruin it with another league and just confuse everybody? Uh, I think the, I, I just don't feel good about it at all. The only good part of having the XFL come into the fold would be it would give even more former college football players a chance to play football and make money. That's, that's a great reason, right? If that's your argument, I understand. 
But my counter would be, okay, just start new AAF franchises. Start it under the Alliance of American Football. If you want more players to work, give them more franchises in the Alliance of American Football. I like their plan. I like their strategy. I chose the AAF. I don't want anything to do with the XFL, and I hope, I just hope they never take off. I really, I want them to stay away. I think they dilute, dilute the product. I think they confuse everybody uh, what's about the, like my dad, for example, has no idea what the AAF even is. I had to explain it to him. So it'd be one thing for him to learn how the AAF works, but then him trying to learn it again and not getting all confused, there was no way. Long story short, I've been rambling now about this. I think the, AAF, the XFL, I think the XFL, another, a second minor league football league is a bad idea and I don't want it. I, I side with the AAF. I do not want the XFL to ever happen. I just, I'm good. I'm out. I hope Jim McMahon hangs it up and says, we're not, we're not doing this. Um, and that is legitimately how I feel. Guys, that's my podcast. Uh, thank you so much. You know, again, on Thursday, we'll talk about Jimmy Garoppolo. We'll talk about Khalil Mack. We'll talk about some of the trade deadline stuff in the NBA. Um, but, you know, personally, I just, uh, the, the Alliance of American Football grabbed my attention. It was really engaging to me. I loved it. I thought it was fun. And, um, yeah, I really wanted to talk about it today. I was really pumped. I will say this. My goal for this podcast, now that I've moved, I've settled in at college. I'm learning my playbook. I'm learning how to do college classes at a different place. I really like where I live. Um, my goal now is to do a podcast every Monday or Tuesday and then every Friday or Thursday. What means I'm going to do a podcast at the beginning of every week, like today, and at the end of every week, like I'll do Thursday. That is my goal. Beginning of, so you, if you're listening on audio feeds and you're, you're just trying to figure out something because I haven't been very consistent recently, I, what I want you to expect is a podcast at the beginning of every week and at the end of every single week. That is what I'm dedicating to you guys. Beginning of every week and end of every week. That is when you can expect to have podcasts every single, t- uh, every single week uh, from Strong Opinion Sports. Guys, my name is Zach Schalmer. Thank you so much. Hope you guys have a great week, and ba-dum-bum-bam, we are done. Bye.